The next set of cases was presented to Dr. Seidman and Schwartzberg. The first case focused on a common clinical situation, a patient with metastatic ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer where hormonal therapy is no longer effective and chemotherapy is going to be given. Before we discuss the case, I did another instant patterns of care survey, this time asking the participants their usual first and second line chemotherapy, assuming the patient is not very symptomatic and has no critical visceral metastases. Here are the answers. First line, I'm pretty commonly using weekly Taxol and Avastin, and second line, usually capecitabine. My initial choice of therapy would be Avastin and Abraxane. And then when she progressed, it would be probably a single agent. Most likely, what do you think it would be? Gemzar. I kind of follow the same line of reasoning. Whether I use Zolota first line and Abraxane would depend on, in part, patient so kind preference. of a split of those two. Right. And adding bevacizumab, actually, that's been a, a reimbursement issue, which I think is now resolved in Massachusetts. I've just started to use a little bit. My first line probably would be Zolota, and my second line probably would be Abraxane. I haven't integrated the Avastin in as much, again, mostly because of reimbursement issues. Zolota first, Taxol Avastin second. I would use Paclitaxel and Bevacizumab first, and then Capecitabine second. If the patient had asymptomatic metastatic disease, I would use Capecitabine first. If I thought the patient had visceral or had symptomatic disease, I would use Paclitaxel and Bev first. And how does it actually play out? Are most people asymptomatic? So you Most to... people, I think, that are coming off of many hormone agents would be less symptomatic when they would be found. You know, I think those people were generally going to have less ER positive. So I find that capecitabine is an easy choice as a transition to chemotherapy from hormonal treatment. I usually choose Abraxane for my first choice. I don't know that I would include it with Avastin. I haven't been doing that so much lately. How about second line? Second line, I usually go to Zolota. I'd probably give her a Zolota first because of reimbursement issues. And then second line, use Bev in combination with a Taxane. Which one? Which Taxane? Probably just Taxol. Zolota first line. And second line will be Abraxane with Avastin. For my first-line patient on relapse, I'd use Paclitaxel with or without a second agent, depending on performance status. I can't say what I'd do, but certainly Paclitaxel would be the standard. Second line would be Zolota. What about Bev? No. Reimbursement or are you just... Reimbursement th- issues. First line, I'm pretty commonly using weekly Taxol and Avastin, and second line, usually Capecitabine. Andy? Everybody's making this very easy for me. I think if I had to pick what I would most commonly give across a spectrum of 20 patients, it would also be Braxane and Avastin first, Zolota second. There are some patients, though, who I would invert that sequence for. Lee? My first choice would be NAB, Paclitaxel, and Bevacizumab, and my second choice would be Capecitabine. Okay, Mike? So this is a 57-year-old physical therapist, no chronic medical problems at all, who developed progressive hardness of her left breast and subsequently her right breast over about a two-year period with gradual retraction of the right breast and fixation to the chest wall. She did not choose to seek any medical attention until she developed bleeding and ulceration from both breasts. At that time, she was evaluated by a surgeon, and the breasts were retracted down to the wall. It was just a real difficult situation. A biopsy was done of the breast. It demonstrated a grade 2 ductal cancer, estrogen receptor 3-plus positive in 95% of cells, PR positive in 80% of cells, and HER2 noon was 2-plus but negative by fish. 
she underwent a staging evaluation, and besides the obvious disease involving her breast and chest wall, there was evidence of lymph node involvement pretty diffusely and bone metastases. Could we take a step back and maybe you can talk a little bit about this woman, a healthcare professional who I'm guessing knew there was a problem and had denial about it. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned about this? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, several times a year, I see patients like this who are in every other aspect in life totally on top of things. You know, she has a good job, she's intelligent, and really just choose to ignore it until it cannot be ignored because other people notice it. Had she been connected to the healthcare system? Did she see a gynecologist? Or? No, really, she hadn't seen a physician at all for any reason in several years. And did you actually discuss this with her or just kind of left it out there? It was started to, and, you know, as often as the case, the patient was apologetic for letting things go too long. And we do have access to psychosocial services, offered it to her. She said, no, I know what I did. From now on, I'm doing everything that needs to be done. And Lee, the story, which Mike says he sees several times a year, is something I think everybody sees here. I'm curious what your experience is and how you interact with these women in these situations. Yeah, this story resonates also. I would say several times a year I see patients very similar to this as well. And it's interesting that they're disproportionately individuals who are connected to the healthcare system. So there is something there that I don't think has been teased out in terms of a population of people that get paralyzed with fear, women who get paralyzed when they detect something wrong with their breast. But whether they're in the healthcare profession or not, we do see this. And I think the most important thing, this is part of the art if you will, of being the oncologist that we all have to go through is you never want to blame the woman for her disease. And so my first approach here would be obviously to be totally supportive that she's come to medical care now. She's obviously feeling guilty. She knows what's going on. The last thing you want to do is heap on the guilt to a person like this. You want to be supportive and help them get through their initial diagnosis and initial treatment. Later on, as the relationship is established and there's a feeling of trust and you're working together is the time to probe a little bit deeper into this. So I think hitting someone like this over the head with why haven't you been here in two years, you knew this was going on is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I think we'd all agree with that. Andy, I just want to get your thoughts in terms of this issue of the patient who's feeling remorseful. This is actually extremely common in oncology practice in terms of, I think, in terms of lung cancer and smoking. And a common scenario that people, you have, now this is different, But in a sense, it's also dealing with a patient who often is in a state of self-recrimination. How do you support people like that? Yeah, I think Lee's comments were right on target. I never profess to think that I know what's operating in terms of why that patient decided not to seek attention. It may have something to do with her marital relationship, with cancer experiences in her mother or sisters. It could have nothing to do with all of those things. But I think that making the patient feel guilty is clearly not the way to go. The only value perhaps in having a discussion about why the patient came to medical attention so late is if that information will help you as you move forward. So I think to that extent, some degree of discussion at an appropriate time, perhaps not the first visit, is appropriate. And I guess the other thing too, Mike, is the issue of starting to assess, is this patient going to be adherent with your regimen? A lot of times you describe a very responsible person and these people can go on trials, et cetera. Was it your take that she was going to be able to follow your whatever recommendation you might make? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you see people and you're afraid to give them chemo because you don't know if they're going to come back. I had the sense that now this was going to be the major priority in her life. What was the family situation? She's married, no children. 
a lot of these similar cases, they are married, and there's also a great deal of guilt on the part of the husband. So did you ask him, or did this no. issue come up about, it was no. pretty obvious what was going on in her breast, I guess. Mm-hmm. Ken, you had a comment? Yeah, I was going to bring three things up, because this is also very common, but since I also deal with an inner city population, where I usually see these patients, is a call from the emergency room, that somebody's come in, and usually it's the daughter or granddaughter who's visiting who notices dirty, bloody Kleenexes or something, or blood cake bras and wanting to know what the hell's going on, essentially. But a couple things I want to bring up. One is generally these patients are all ER positive because if they weren't, they'd be dead. I mean, this is long-standing disease, so you are going to have time. That usually this typical thing going right to bone is a classic with lymph nodes, but if you notice, there's no liver, no lung, so there is time to work things through. I think the second point is, and we just touched on it, is family. Most of the dynamics comes up with guilt. It's not so much the patient who really does know what's going on. It's the family for not recognizing it earlier. Now, for whatever reason, whether, you know, the husbands and how, if they have sex, or ever seen each other naked, or the lights are out, or the children coming in, and a lot of times that comes up much later particularly as the disease progresses and you see what's happening and the fear or the reality sets in. And finally, the other thing, dealing particularly with first-generation people who are in, is finances. A lot of their fear is that, look, I know I've got cancer. Where I came from, everybody died. I'm trying to save money for my kids. Why bother? And you have to work through that, and that becomes very upfront when you're sitting down with family trying to figure out how to pay in the community practice much. And I don't mean to say anything about Memorial and Andy, but I mean, essentially part of the issue is what can they afford and how are you going to deal with the psychosocial issues? And I think that all comes to a head much more so for the staff because the last point I want to bring up is that this is an area where in the back room, in the lunchroom, people are talking, how could this happen? You know, in today's day and age, and you have to work through the staffing issue as well of saying, listen, this is an individual and as a patient, we can deal with all this stuff later. Yes, the patient who blames herself is very common. It's also not uncommon, I think, that the physician will often end up blaming himself or herself for the outcome in a patient's case, even in situations where it doesn't make very much sense. I think it's often not commented upon, but it does seem to be part of the culture of oncology practice that, one, the patients are often blaming themselves for the illness that they have, and then the physicians, even if we don't talk about it that often, will often also blame themselves for the outcome of the patient. Interesting. And I would just add that within this type of patient scenario, there's, I think, a percentage of patients who actually don't consider themselves actually neglecting the situation because they have actually engaging in alternative medicine. And I don't know if Interesting. something, if you don't ask often, you don't find out. I don't know if this woman is actually... Did you have any? No, but that's definitely yeah. often the case. What not, kinds not of things in particular- do you see? <laughs> you name it. Especially Miami, there's a vast number of alternative practitioners from all over the Caribbean. And most of the list of things that people are trying, from noni juice to enemas, and I don't even try to learn about them, to be honest. Rich? Yeah, I was going to comment that, you know, I practice in an area where there's an indigent population and also a fairly wealthy population. And this is not a scenario that's limited to the indigent population. I will see patients who have access to the best medical care in the world to present with this. So there's something more here that we're not identifying in this population as to why these people are neglecting this. Bonnie? Yeah, I think the comments are interesting, but they all surround the recognition of the problem. But at the end of the day, that patient is going to leave our office with all the guilt that we were so astute to pick up on in the first place. I think in the appropriate setting, it's reasonable to sort of talk about the elephant in the room and communicate to the woman that, you know, I understand I would feel guilty too, but, you know, let's start the clock now and 
we have a new partnership, it's a new chapter, and sort of give them an opportunity and a place to dump that guilt, I think that's beneficial. And, you know, I don't think there's anybody out there who's not doing something that's not perfect in terms of food or whatever. You know, yeah, we all have yeah. our thing, and, you know, I don't think it's a black and white kind of situation. Phil? I think your point about the indigent population, there's a huge educational piece that I think that as oncologists in terms of cancer screening, we really have an obligation to participate in. And the city that I work in actually sponsored a program for breast and colon prostate cancer screening. And when I went, I was amazed at how faith-based a lot of these participants were, that big congregations from inner city churches came. And I think that there are people just, that in terms of screening, this is a different problem in some contexts, but in terms of screening, just don't know. So actually, let's go to Andy and say, how would you think through management in this situation? First of all, for this case, I think it's important to point out that the search for metastasis in a woman with locally advanced disease is very important, so that needs to be done. And indeed, this woman has bone metastasis. Because her disease is strongly ER positive, PR positive, HER2 negative, and she's untreated, she's postmenopausal, Michael, at 57, I presume, I would begin treatment with her with an aromatase inhibitor and uh, bisphosphonate, and that would be it for starters. Lee? In general, that would be my standard of care as well. I wanted to ask one question, Mike. You mentioned both breasts. So did she have initially that both breasts had gotten thickened? Did she have bilateral disease or did you think she had metastatic disease to the other breast? This was a situation where there was no way you could tell. They were like plastered down together. Autolysis of the breast, essentially. She remembered it as starting in one breast. I think it's one disease that spread over, but... Was she having any local symptoms? Well, she came because of bleeding, not really pain. So she had ulceration? Ulceration with bleeding. How much of a problem, how concerned were you about that? It wasn't that bad. Concerned in terms of needing local management right away or concerned about directing treatment? Local management. No, she compensated by... How big was the area of ulceration? I would say it was about four by three centimeters, but really flat. But four by three centimeters? It was almost like a skin tear abrasion. Andy, what happens if you radiate a patient with that kind of a scenario? That's certainly a consideration. And in the short term, you can actually occasionally see more hemorrhage and more bleeding. But eventually, after you have necrotic tumor, hopefully there's an opportunity for sufficient scarring, granulation, and healing. Radiotherapy can be a problem. And this is occasionally, depending upon whether one can even consider a surgical intervention, occasionally an indication for palliative surgical intervention, although it sounds like this woman has such diffuse disease with a contracted breast that there's probably no normal tissue. There's no way to get a margin. So this is just a really tough situation. Topical thrombin is also something I've used to control local bleeding in this kind of patient. So in this patient who is symptomatic from their disease, while the standard of care would be an AI and bisphosphonate, I have a number of patients like this who sometimes reverse the sequence of therapy. And I have actually an increasing number of patients who I'm finding with oligometastatic disease because of increasing screening. And that's always a very difficult thing. A different scenario, but sometimes neglected breast cancer, sometimes patients who come with locally advanced disease who would still be resectable and you work them up. And increasingly, my standard of care for clinical stage three patients is to get a PET CT scan. And sometimes you find the one or two asymptomatic bone metastases. What do you do with those patients, especially in an ER positive patient? So I've taken a different tact, and it's certainly unconventional, but to do induction chemotherapy in a patient like this as if one was treating for, quote, cure, 
not in this patient because she has extensive disease, but given the fact that she has symptomatic disease and we all know it's going to take some time for an AI to work and she's symptomatic and if there's concerns about radiotherapy for local control, one could make the case that perhaps an induction chemotherapy to get a rapid response and then move to an AI and hold further chemotherapy until later. Okay, Mike, can you take us up to the next time point? Okay, so she was started on a Remedix and initially had a good response, but the bleeding stopped within several weeks. Clearly, you didn't need much to know whether it was working. She was responding. She had an elevated marker. It came down. She also got an IV biphosphonate. What happened to the ulceration in her breast? It improved. Did it completely heal up? It retracted into the rest of the breast. There seemed to be like an epithelium there or something yes. to protect it? Yeah. And was she stopped bleeding? Yes. Did she feel any better? Or? As bad as it looked to anyone else, who, you know, the nurses and the physicians, it was not something that really bothered her or was painful to her. She was aware she was experiencing a tumor response? Yeah. Once she came to the office, then she wanted to be on top of everything, you know, every tumor marker or every measurement. Were you talking to the husband also or mainly to her? Only her. She came by herself? The first time with her husband and maybe one other time with her husband. Okay, so if you can just kind of get right up to the next decision so point. So for about a year, 11 so months, she responded, and then she brought to my attention that she had a new lesion on her skin. We waited another month or so. Her mark went up, and when she came back, she had clearly progressed by a year. And at that point, we decided to go with Fazlodex with a loading dose schedule, to which she had no response at all over a three-month period. Just one point that I'd like to make. I think given the effect results, either certainly fulvestrant or exemestane have been shown to be equally effective. And I think it's important when you're going to give somebody a fair trial for second-line hormonal therapy not to give up before about three months or so, unless there's just clearly obvious progression. I think you really, in order to give a second-line antiestrogen a chance, you need to at least invest three months of time to trying it. And it's interesting in terms of loading dose, you know, even though this lady seemed to have indolent disease that you don't know whether it was kind of starting to pick up. The thing is, you can see it right there. So she progresses, you're going to know it. Lee, how do you usually face the decision of a patient progressing on a non-steroidal AI, the effect situation here? Fulvestrant is typically my second choice as well, but I think the data would certainly support using exemestane as well, based on what Andy just said. I've also used the loading dose, which, although it's not on the label, I think that there's abundant evidence that that's the best way to go, because otherwise it takes time to reach serum levels for fulvestrant that are effective. And so then you're not only waiting to three months, but you're not even treating the patient effectively if you don't do that, so... And we've seen in about the last two years a rapid escalation in the use of the loading dose in our patterns of care surveys, but I think it's actually going to increase now because that's what was done in the EFFECT trial. And, and people asked when Bill Gratishar presented this in San Antonio, do you really need to do this? And he said, I don't know. That's what we did. So, you know, we follow the trials and it makes pharmacologic sense. And I'd be a little nervous in this lady. I mean, I'd be really nervous about the local situation getting out of control and having a really bad palliative situation. I'm sure that was in your head. Did her bone metastases progress as well? I don't know that I checked. I mean, her marker went up and clinically... Did she have bone pain at all? She never had bone pain. She was staged along the way. and So at what point did you decide she was progressing on full vascular? Yeah, she had three months and on the fourth month follow-up, it was clear to her. The patient came in and told me it wasn't working. 
So actually, I just kind of want to throw this back now to Lee and Andy and say that what you told me was that at this point, you decided it was time for chemotherapy. Is that, or yeah. you too decided that? Well, if she had had some evidence of a response to the second line hormone, I might have thought about it, but I didn't want her to get out of control, like you said, locally. And so at that point, I recommended that she start chemotherapy. Okay, so, you know, we can debate whether maybe another hormone should be tried. Obviously, that would be a consideration. But I really want to focus, again, based on this little patterns of care scenario, because this is an extremely common scenario. I want to focus on this situation. The oncologist has decided it's time for chemotherapy. It's a situation where there's not rapidly progressive visceral life-threatening disease, but he's nervous about what's going on with this tumor. So, Lee, how would you think it through? On a patient like this who had a year of progression-free survival, on first-line therapy and then has had progression after four months and so has already been treated for over a year and a half. I might, particularly if it was cutaneous metastases, no visceral metastases, I think I would go to Cape Cytobine as my first choice here. With or without bevacizumab? In this case, without bevacizumab. Can you talk a little about your thinking in that decision and what you thought about the Excalibur data that was presented at the ASCO meeting by George Sledge looking at Cape Cytobine with bevacizumab? The Excalibur study was a relatively small phase two trial of capecitabine plus bevacizumab, and the results were interesting in terms of the subgroup analysis, which showed that the ER-positive patients had prolonged progression-free survival with bevacizumab compared to those that were ER-negative. And that was somewhat of a surprise, I think, to George and everybody. So, you know, that's interesting biology. It needs to be repeated. It certainly suggests, if it is true, that there may be, particularly with capecitabine and bevacizumab, that might be the group of patients to particularly target, but I don't think that the data is compelling enough yet to make that standard of practice. Now, in this situation, the patient does have an ER-positive tumor. What would be your thinking on wanting to use just capecitabine? Well, again, I think it depends on the tempo of the disease in this case. And there, it really is sitting down with the patient and getting a feel for what she wants to do and what the impact on her life is going to be. So it's frequent, particularly for patients that have not been on chemotherapy and if their disease is, we're following them carefully, and if it's a relatively minimal progression to talk about using a drug that will be easier for their lifestyle, which generally speaking, capecitabine is. So you're thinking more in terms of her having to come in for the bevacizumab infusions? Yes. Of course, she is coming in for the bisphosphonate, though. You think you generally want to do that. Andy? This is the kind of patient where I very likely would have given a try of tamoxifen exemestane or even magestrol acetate. Having crossed that bridge, I think this woman who has relatively asymptomatic bone metastasis, I likely would also consider a capecitabine strategy <clears throat> up front instead of taxane-based strategy. As to whether I would add bevacizumab, certainly it sounds like right now her risk of local bleeding from the disease is low. But still, when we look at the large randomized data, Kathy Miller's original trial, while there was a doubling of response rate, the progression-free survival really wasn't improved. I think the Excalibur trial was important in that it showed good efficacy, even with a lower dose of capecitabine than was used in Kathy Miller's trial. I'm not sure what to make of the ER subset analysis in Excalibur, whether this really simply reflects the more favorable biology of the disease with a longer time to progression in the ER positive, or whether it's a treatment interaction. I'm really not sure. I think the bottom line is a lot of people have taken a second look. That's really why we want to talk about exactly this situation. You know, you've had a patient who's had endocrine therapy, is used to not having a real horrendous time or having the kind of problems that people have with intravenous chemotherapy. Before the E2100 data, 
came out, a lot of people were using capecitabine in this situation for palliation reasons, and I kind of want to see where we're at today with that. Let's hear what happened with this patient. Okay, so the patient was started on capecitabine originally on a 14-day on, 7-day off, uh, a 3-gram dose uh, in general. That's the dose I picked to start Flat with. Flat 3 grams? Yeah. And had a fair amount of skin, hand, foot, palmar, palmar, erythrodysplasia, and I needed to reduce. I actually switched it to a one-week-on, one-week-off schedule at the same dose, and she improved and clinically has been responding. She's in her sixth month of therapy. The biphosphonate is now every eight weeks. Does she have any more hand foot or she's okay? No, she still has it, but it's not bothersome to her. And what's the dose she's on right now? She's actually on 2,500 milligrams, seven days on, seven days off. And what happened to the tumor? It's responding. She's clearly responding. How much? She's better than where she was at the maximal response to the hormones. But she's never going to have disease that's going to be encompassable by any surgery. How about her tumor markers? They're falling. She's in the 60 to 70 range. What's her lifestyle like? She has no limitations. What does she do? She's a physical therapist. So she's She's, working? Yeah, and she's semi-retired. She has family in Canada. She's traveling a lot. But she's doing some work as a physical therapist? Oh, absolutely. Interesting. Lee, any thoughts? I think this is a typical scenario, and that's thankful that we see nice responses to capecitabine or other first-line therapy, and adjusting the dose is common, and I don't think we know what the optimal dose is for capecitabine. Andy and his colleagues at the Memorial are doing a mathematical-based approach of one week on, one week off, which looks very interesting, but the original FDA-labeled dose, which came from colon cancer, is clearly very high, and that's the maximally tolerated dose. And in breast cancer, I'm not sure we know the optimal dose here. So very gratifying. The patient is doing well and hopefully will continue to do well for time. And these docs are aware from dealing with colon cancer all the time about the interesting phenomena of people in the United States or North America not being able to tolerate the same dose as Europeans that came out of the, presumably that's going to apply to all people. But Andy, apparently the one week on, one week thing was interesting enough that Mike actually did it in this patient. Can you talk about what's going on with that study? Before some preclinical experiments were performed looking at that regimen and where it did seem to make sense from a Norton-Simon kinetic perspective, this is something that I actually decided to do in my patients in lieu of reducing the dose in a 14-day on, 7-day off schedule. And I would treat, as Michael did, with three 500-milligram tablets in the AM and 3 in the PM, or 3,000-milligram total flat dose, and simply change the schedule to 7 days on, 7 days off. And what, in effect, you're doing, it's a 17% reduction in delivered dose intensity over time. Instead of giving treatment two-thirds of the time, two weeks out of three, you're giving treatment 50% of the time, one week out of two. So 67 minus 50 is 17% reduction in delivered dose. And I think this approach, just from a very simple symptomatic point of view, allows time for resolution of whatever the pathophysiology is of palmar plantar erythrodysesthesia primarily. And also it allows recovery of GI mucosal effects. So I think you do see less potential for diarrhea and hand foot syndrome. And actually, this is an approach that Tiffany Traina and Maria Theodulu have led us in a phase one, two trial to define the optimal dosing on that schedule. Are you guys actually doing it specifically off-study, or you just put everybody yeah. on the study? Oh, no, no. It's become, I think, our favorite approach off-study using capecitabine. And how in general is the group thinking through this generic situation? I hear a lot of 
Nab and paclitaxel with bevacizumab and capecitabine alone or with bevacizumab is the two common choices in this situation being individualized to the patient. Is that in general how your group approaches it? I think for patients who have been on antiestrogens for a while, who are accustomed to coming into clinic every six weeks or eight weeks, who are basically on home-based oral therapy and who lack significant symptomatic visceral disease, the transition into the world of chemotherapy, quote-unquote, is often a smooth one when you're going from an AI, for example, to capecitabine. However, you know, there are those patients who have a more rapid tempo of disease progression, who have significant symptomatology, visceral disease, for whom parenteral therapy, as in taxane, taxane, bevacizumab, seems to be more appropriate. I find it interesting that, because I know you're studying the issue of NAB plus bevacizumab in trials, correct? Yeah, we're currently looking at a NAB-paclitaxel dosing question, comparing the package insert dose of 260 per meter squared every three weeks to a weekly CLGB 9840-style dosing at 130 per meter squared weekly, and then a third arm, which is looking at a 260 per meter squared Q2-week dose with filgrastim support, all with bevacizumab, and that trial is actually accruing very nicely, not only at Memorial, but at other sites. I thought I heard you say, or I believe I heard you say, that you would actually use NAB and Bev off-study in this situation? Well, I think it's hard for me, unless there are prohibitive or harmful pharmacoeconomic implications for the patient in getting NAB-paclitaxel, for me, that would be the taxane that I would choose to administer any time I wanted to prescribe paclitaxel for metastatic disease. But, you know, just in terms of the sort of research-to-practice type issues here, people would say, well, do we have enough data to do that clinically? What do we know about NAB and BEV in terms of clinical research reports? Well, apart from clinical data, phase two data from Charles Link from our group at Memorial and others, there are also some preclinical considerations, and certainly there's a potential for increased angiogenesis, particularly with weekly scheduling of paclitaxel, and that's part of the speculation as to why that incremental benefit was seen in E2100 with paclitaxel and BEV, and perhaps where it wasn't quite so obvious in the CAPE plus minus BEV trial. Lee, how is you know, NAB playing out in your area, both from a clinical practice point of view as well as research? From the research perspective, we just completed a study of NAB paclitaxel and capecitabine, and we saw very good activity. In that study, we did weekly schedule of NAB paclitaxel 125 day 1-8 with capecitabine at 825 per meter squared BID for days 1 through 14. And actually, it was very well tolerated. The response rate, which was the primary endpoint in that study, was about 55%. And the progression-free survival was over nine months, which was really very good, with very few patients having dose reductions or dose delays. So that's an interesting approach that we're going to expand on in the future. We were talking about that because I don't know how many of you might have participated in the trials looking at paclitaxel capecitabine. There was one U.S. oncology that Joanne Blum ran and another one that Bill Gratishaw ran. I always thought they had a pretty favorable therapeutic ratio there. It seemed to be pretty well tolerated. And I was was kind of surprised it wasn't used more. When I heard about NAB and capecitabine, that sounded almost even more appealing. I hate to imply this, but I think some of the toxicities that were observed in the O'Shaughnessy regimen of docetaxel capecitabine gave the taxane capecitabine doublet an unfair bad rep. And I agree with you, Neil. I think that the paclitaxel or nab-paclitaxel capecitabine regimens reported so far have a very different safety profile. I have a secret fantasy that somehow there'll be an adjuvant study of nab capecitabine. It'll be my, like, TC. 
Anyhow, so what about in the clinically? How's that playing out? I'm not really, you know, we talked about the fact that our patterns of care studies show that 30% of docs in practice are using steroids and pre-medications with NAB. And essentially none of the investigators are. I mentioned that to you yesterday, Lee. What were your thoughts about it? Well, there are some issues with napaclitaxel in the community because not all insurers can pay for it. And it also depends particularly with Medicare patients because it is a more expensive drug. And we have to, unfortunately, be business people, not just physicians these days. And we have to look at those types of things, whether the patient has a copay insurance and whether they don't, and some of those issues that we've been loath to deal with, but unfortunately represent the reality of practicing oncology in America today. So that's the first issue. The steroids is surprising to me. There really is no data that one should have to use steroids with napaclitaxel because there is no solvent. The risk of hypersensitivity, which is the reason presumably that steroids are used, while not totally non-existent, is very unusual. Steroids weren't used in the trials of that. Right. So one would not be following the trial recommendations. I suspect that it represents a bit of inertia that for other taxanes, obviously with paclitaxel needed for the antihypersensitivity, and for docetaxel, steroids are recommended presumably to reduce the edema that's associated with it. So people get operationalized their practices and internalized well with taxanes you use steroids. And so it requires a little bit more differentiation. Andy. While on the subject of pre-medication, I will tell you that when I see patients in consultation and I'm pouring through the faxed medical records and I actually read chemotherapy flow sheets, I'm surprised at how much antiemetic use is used before single-agent paclitaxel, docetaxel, or nabpaclitaxel. My standard of care is to give nothing, but I see many docs who routinely give palinesitron, granisetron, ondansetron, a prepotent, and I'm not sure that that's really a useful thing. Lee, is there a logic to that? Well, the taxanes in general have low emetic risk. So if one's following the NCCN or ASCO guidelines, there wouldn't be any reason a priori to use an anti-emetic. Although for a low risk, or if you think you're concerned about that for a patient, single-dose steroids is actually the recommendation. So that might be it. But I think it reflects the fact that, again, in busy practices, there may be a standard and it may behoove us all to go back and look and make sure that the guidelines are being followed. And to do that actually requires putting in guidelines in your practice. Andy. I was going to just comment on that because I do a lot of speaking. And I know when I go to groups and I say when you use NAB, you don't need to use any pre-meds. I use no pre-meds. And a lot of times the physicians in the audience will raise their hand and say, but I do, and I'm afraid not to. And a lot of it, I think, is because of habit with the old taxanes that people are shocked when I say I use no pre-meds with this. Ken? Yeah, just two questions. The length of time from the time your patient saw the lesion to the time she showed you is what period of time? She says two years. So it's a slow-growing tumor. Secondly, now that the patient is somewhat controlled locally, and that's made her main area of disease, any issues about dealing with electron beam at this time? in order to do local control, even a better local control, as opposed to true radiation therapy by using electron beam, because it's actually skin deep and you would get a very good response because now you probably have very little bleeding because you're having issues? That was the second question. It's something we could consider. And then my third one, really quickly, the difference that you see between nabpaclitaxel and paclitaxel, because my issue dealing with an elderly population and mostly Medicare-based is cost. I mean, and I don't see a big difference in efficacy that's going to justify 167 versus the money that you'd pay for nab paclitaxel. So, do you bring it up to your patients as an option, or are you 
Don't even discuss uh, it. Once we sit down beforehand with the office manager and one of our oncology nurses and going through costs and finding out that their insurance won't pay for it, it just is not an option. Most people cannot afford it. If it is an option and if you can get it reimbursed, do you use it? I would use it after, not before. I would consider possibly using it after. I don't have after any problem what? if I would use something else. But I would use Paclitaxel for the most part. I don't see any major difference between the two. And chair time, to me, is not an issue. I'm not overwhelmed with time to get people out with premedications. Lee, can you respond to that? And also the question of whether you think there's greater efficacy. I'll tell you, Ken, that in our patterns of care studies and in the think tank yesterday, when we asked people, you know, just tell us, what do you think, based on the literature, based on your whatever, can you compare the efficacy of NAB to Paclitaxel? And the most common response in both investigators and docs in practice is they think it's more efficacious. That's their sort of gut. So it's not just about share time or pre-meds. Not that your point's not 100% valid. But, Lee, you tell me, how much of an advantage is yeah, it? survival. Yeah, it's still, I think, somewhat controversial. The Phase three study looked at 260 of NAB versus 175 every three weeks, and 260 beat 175 in that study. There are some issues there in terms of it was a mixture of first and second line patients. Bill Gratisho has done a large randomized phase two that was presented at San Antonio and updated at ASCO, looking at weekly schedules versus both docetaxel and paclitaxel, and actually some change between San Antonio and ASCO in that the 150 per week arm beat the others, where originally it looked like the 100 and 150 were equal. So I think we need a phase three trial to know for sure. But I think it's at least as equally effective or perhaps slightly more. Now, remember, it's a, we're not comparing a milligram to milligram basis of paclitaxel. It's giving more therapy with actually less toxicity. So that's the advantage. Andy, I always get kind of nervous when I see, quote, randomized phase two studies. Just to be sure, this is a randomized phase two trial with four arms and 300 patients or 75 patients per arm. I like to jog everybody's memories to the number of patients that it took to convince us all that it was worthwhile to add trastuzumab to paclitaxel in Slayman's pivotal trial. Does anyone remember the number? It was 90 or 91 patients. Really? In each who got paclitaxel. Wow. And 92 or something. And that changed the world. That turned the world upside down. There were a larger number of patients who got anthracycline, plus or minus Herceptin, in that trial. So 75 patients per arm in a randomized phase two is certainly not a highly powered phase three trial, but it certainly is something that I think can influence practice. Was it your take that it was more efficacious than docetaxel, or you can't really say that? Well, I think whether you look at the investigator-assessed response rates or the independent response review committee's assessed response rates, both weekly abraxane regimens beat docetaxel at 100 per meter squared every three weeks. The time-to-progression analysis favored the 150 dose, and I'm kind of conflicted on, I've not given 150 per meter squared of abraxane on a weekly schedule. The 100 dose is incredibly well tolerated. You are going to pay a little bit higher price in terms of neuropathy with 150, and we'll have to see how that dose plays out in a large randomized trial. One final comment back to you, Ken. I mean, I totally appreciate your comment. There's no question. And we want to try to integrate the realities of decision-making and reimbursement, et cetera. But we also, and our real main focus is really to look at the clinical science. So we can look at the data, try to understand the risk-benefit. Yes, we have to deal with these other things. But I think if we're going to make decisions like that, at least we have to make sure we understand that, you know. I'm just wondering if there was any survival advantage. I mean, progression-free. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen it, so I'd like to learn. Survival advantage. Over, over survival. Between in the randomized phase two. Or no, but I, that wasn't the end point. I would argument. argue that yeah. in a trial that's simply looking at 
you know, this one line of therapy in a disease like breast cancer where we have three lines of hormonal therapy, four or five lines of chemotherapy, that for me, progression-free survival is the right endpoint. And it's really a research issue. It doesn't tell you how to make a decision like none of these trials do. It's Michael's patient here who's going to respond to capecitabine, hopefully for a good long time, could at some point because of hand foot syndrome, diarrhea, or just fatigue, chemo fatigue, be taken off and then get tamoxifen or exemestane. All of these interventions will also impact on survival. And at the point that she's going to get chemo again, Andy and Lee, most likely, what do you think you would be recommending, Lee? So my next choice would be a taxane. And based on the discussion, nabpaclitaxel would be my taxane of choice. And Bev or not? At this point... I would wait for more data with Bev in the second line or further setting. So she's got liver mets and she's really doing poorly. I think in that case, we have a reflex to try to treat with the potentially most effective regimen. The one thing you can say about chemotherapy plus Bev past the first line is that the response rates were higher in Kathy Miller's capecitabine plus Bev study, although the overall survival and progression-free survival weren't. So if one is looking for response as an important parameter in the patient's care, I think it's reasonable to do that. Andy, what do you think your next therapy would be? I probably would go to NAB, Paclitaxel, Bev as second line after capecitabine in Michael's patient. Having said that, we don't have the second line data that we will eventually have from Ribbon 2 yet, although I tend to think it's going to be extrapolatable. If she now has liver metastasis as well, one could also consider the paclitaxel gemcitabine doublet as a reasonable paclitaxel-based combination regimen for that patient who has significant visceral disease. Okay, final question or comment? This is a woman who has an ulcerated lesion. If we have achieved good local control up front after she responded, the ulcer has healed, we had gone and given her local therapy with radiation. I understand why it's not given that is we want to have a marker to follow. But if we have given the local therapy, this lady has not progressed anywhere else and she would have stayed on the hormonal therapy much longer period of time, why should we allow her also to recur on every time you give a therapy, and that has a psychological impact? I'm just wondering, if you look at that point of view, even though a systematic assessment has not been made to see if she has progressed anywhere else, but if she has not had a symptomatic progression anywhere else, so if you give her the local therapy, there is a good chance we could have kept her on the hormonal therapy perhaps much longer. And I would like you to comment taking that approach and how does that play out? Yeah, generally the indications for radiation are pain for palliation of metastatic breast cancer, pain, painful bone metastasis, impending fracture. In this scenario, whether to radiate preemptively or when the disease is clearly escaping the control of your systemic agents, I think is a tough call. The argument against radiating earlier is that there is a percentage of patients who will have significant skin necrosis, radiation pneumonitis, potentially even cardiac effects from chest wall radiation.